Welcome to the Storycraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. Storycraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. It's kind of become funny that each time I open the podcast, I say, man, do we have a great interview for you today, but it's true. Nina Simon joins us today. She is a debut author that has a fun and uh, funny and a tense mystery thriller that you're going to love. This um, mother-daughter murder night is her first book. And it's so great. And we have a great conversation with Nina today. Thank you, as always, to Dabble for sponsoring the Storycraft Cafe. If you're looking to take those story ideas out of your head and heart and put them on the page, DabbleWriter.com is the place to go and get started. Now on to our show with Nina Simon. And we are live here in the Storycraft Cafe. I am your host, Hank Garner, uh, here every week to bring you authors that you're going to love. And as we talk the craft of writing, storytelling with some of the greatest minds that I can find uh, in publishing today. Today, I'm super excited because Nina Simon is joining us today. She has a brand new book. It's called Mother Daughter Murder Night. And today, if you're listening to this live, is release day for this book. So happy release day, Nina. Thank you. I'm so honored to be with you. You know, when I got asked about when to schedule this, I was like, yeah, heck yeah, I want to talk to Hank on release day. So <laughs> I'm glad to be with you and, and anybody who's with us live right now. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I absolutely love this book and we're going to get into it in a little bit. But uh, I just wanted to start by saying that it's a phenomenal book. I know this is your debut book. Um, this is your your first um foray into fiction is I, I know you've got a great story about how this book came about but but this was was this the first book that you'd ever written first novel not first book okay. um I, I, it's, I like to say it's my first novel but about my fifth career um when i, I was a college Sounds student like yeah, I was a college student. I was an electrical engineer by day and a slam poet by night. So I put out a couple of chapbooks that you make at the copy shop. Yep. And then later I had a career as a museum exhibit designer and a museum director. And I wrote two books of nonfiction during that time, um, really about um, how to invite people who maybe haven't felt welcome in museums and cultural institutions to be part of them. And um, then my life changed again about three years ago, and it led me back into creative writing and um, into writing fiction for the first time. Electrical engineer. Um, you worked with NASA at one point. Is that right? I did. I, you know, I graduated early from college, Hank, and I got my dream job at NASA and I just hated it. And it was one of those great experiences where you learn real early that you yeah. were wrong before you have invested your life in something. And then I, of course, made the phone call that no Jewish mother wants to hear, which is, hi, mom, I'm quitting my electrical engineering job at NASA to work at a children's museum, designing puppet shows about math for $5 an hour and, uh, and doing poetry on the side. And it's going to be great. But it's all turned out OK. And I think my mom has... 
gotten used to these zigs and zags in my career over the last couple of decades. You know, I, I've tried to to tell my kids, we, we have five kids and uh, our uh, all of them are through college and uh, on life, except for our youngest, who is uh, in the middle of art school right now. And, um, you know, I've tried to tell them all, you know, don't be married mm. to what you think you want to be at 19, yeah. 20 years old, because I, I'm like you, Nina, I, I've had eight careers at this point and awesome. they're all things that I've been passionate about. But, yes, you know, your your levels of passion vary <laughs> depending yeah. on how much experience you have with how much experience you have with life and Absolutely. what's going to bring you, you know, satisfaction and joy and meaning and. And I know that, that you, this is something that resonates with you because um, reading some of your, your writing on your Substack, uh, which we'll talk about in, in just a little bit, it, you had a real hard time when you went through this life transition that, that brought about the book mm-hmm. um, with always feeling like you needed to bring purpose to the world, like mm-hmm. that you weren't fulfilling something. Mm-hmm. Um could you talk a little bit about that and, and like yeah. what this pressure is yeah. on us to be something big? Well, I love hearing what you're talking about with your kids, because I do think that at least in America, there's a real drumbeat of this sense that your job as a young person is to find the career that fully satisfies you and that you then, you know, kind of build a brick wall of all of these achievements in this one direction um, and that that's what success looks like. And I think for people like you or I, who have multiple different passions, sometimes um, people can look at us like, you know, you're just chaotically bouncing from one thing to another. But I really believe, you know, I like to think about Russian stacking dolls and this idea that every experience is in there, but you're just um, finding joy and deep engagement in something new. And I think that one thing that isn't talked about often when we talk about people who shift gears um, is that often at the moment when you should be most excited, when you're Mm -hmm. choosing something new, it's often a time that is marked by a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of loss. And in my case, you know, I spent almost 20 years working in museums and nonprofits and got to the point where I spent 10 years running nonprofits, first as a museum director and then as a nonprofit CEO. And when I put that down, which in my case was because of a mixture of burnout and because my mom had gotten very sick, Um, and I started picking up writing fiction, I felt embarrassed. Even though I was doing what I most wanted to do, what was important for my family, even though I was doing something that was bringing me a lot of joy, I had spent so many years feeling like my worth and my sense of a good day was based on what I had produced, was based on who I had impacted, was based on the job that I had and what I was doing. And it felt kind of embarrassing to feel proud that I had made a meal my mom would eat or that I'd written a scene that made her smile Um, because, you know, I wrote this book for her in a time of really tough uh, cancer diagnosis. And so on the one hand, I was finding so much joy in the intimacy and the smallness of this project. And on the other hand, I was unlearning some of the messages in my own head about how doing something small, doing something personal and precious doesn't matter. And that that on some level means that you don't matter. And I feel like as a creative person, um, I am constantly having to remind myself 
Not that this matters in some big way, but that it's okay to follow something that is just giving you joy and purpose on a daily basis, even if nobody outside of your room or outside of your little world um, is aware that you're doing it. Well said, well said. Um, You were an electrical engineer and doing slam poetry at the same time. Um, Does that dichotomy... um, hit you as funny or, um, you know, one seems like it's a very, if you believe in these kind of, um, uh, determinations, but left brain and one's very right brain, um, and, and seem, you know, diametrically opposed. Was that something that struck you as odd or was this just, um, you know, kind of an outgrowth of, well, this is who I am. I am. Yeah. I'm all in on a lot of things at once. You know, I mean, those were the more, I, I hesitate to use the word professional about slam poetry, but those are the ones, you know, on the bio, but I also have always been a very passionate athlete, a very passionate outdoors woman. And I feel like for me, all these things coexist. I also say that, you know, I grew up in a household with a dad who was a rock musician, you know, a mom who had multiple different different careers around educational technology. And I think that there was just this sense in uh, my house growing up that you pursue the things that you love and that there is no limit to how many of those things there can be. And, you know, Hank, when I was leaving high school, um, I was really debating if I wanted to study creative writing and literature or if I wanted to study engineering. I loved math and science and I loved writing and reading. And I figured reading and writing would be part of my life no matter what. What, but that I probably wasn't going to be an engineer as a hobby. <laughs> and so I felt like right. that's what I wanted to study. And so it is so funny in some ways to realize that this is coming full circle in a way I just never would have anticipated. And um, I feel like I live for those surprises and discoveries. And I hope that, you know, as life goes on, I, I keep surprising myself um, with passions. And, and I'm also the kind of person who... For me, balance looks like um, doing multiple very different things. You know, right now it's about motherhood and daughterhood, but it's also about and writing, obviously, and reading. But it's also about playing beach volleyball. It's also about learning how to do a great handstand, you know. And so I feel like I'm always looking to be growing and learning in multiple different directions at once. I think the thing I couldn't do that I really admire people who can do this are those people who, you know, are an engineer by day. And then after work, they volunteer at a tinkering studio and they're working in their garage on the weekend. I need very different things to balance out my life. Um, I I'm not all in on just one thing. Yeah. Um, I've said this before on the show, but we've done uh, over 1500 author interviews over the last decade. Um, What I find interesting in all of these great people that I've gotten to meet and pick their brain, you know, about process and why you do the things that you do um, is out of those 1500. Seriously, Nina, um, I could put one hand possibly to the amount of people who knew they were always going to be a writer Mm. and that was their sole 
pursuit, mm. uh, like mm. out of high mm. school directly mm. into college where I'm going to study how to write and publish. And this is, this is going to be the only thing that I ever do. Those, those are rare, mm-hmm. rare, rare, rare stories. Mm-hmm. They do exist, yeah. but they're super rare. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people are, are like you and I, and they, they have a lot of things that interest them and they you know, seem like they're, you know, kind of bouncing from one thing to the other when they're really collecting um, life experience and collecting relationships with people that they draw on. And and then out of this collected, um, you know, gumbo that you kind of put together, you know, comes the, the best stories. Um, how do you feel about coming to authorship uh, at this point in your life? And, you know, does it come with regrets that, um, you know, this, this has been, this book is being so well received. It just came out today, but there's already a lot of buzz around it. Do you ever catch yourself thinking, oh, I should have done this sooner, you know, or does that not even, you know, that hasn't even occurred to me. And, and uh, to be honest, it's for two reasons, you know, one is about what you're saying about the accumulation of life experience. And I know that that served this story, but also the books I hope to write next. Also, frankly, being a little older, you know, I started writing this book when I was 40. Um, I feel like there's a lot of rejection and a lot of heartbreak that goes in the publishing process. I don't know that I could have handled it as well at 25 as I can now. But the other reason is I never expected to write this novel. You know, I wrote it because my mom and I were going through a really hard time and, um, um, and we needed something to focus on that was not cancer. And so um, I started this project on a whim because she and I had always loved murder mysteries and because I wanted to write a murder mystery with somebody like her as the detective, you know, and I wanted to write something that would make her smile. And I put in all, I mean, it's not exactly about us, but there are some biographical broad strokes that are connected about sure. a grandma, a mom always. and a daughter in California. Um, we haven't solved the merger together yet, but, uh, you know, there's always time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, um, I think that there, you know, people talk about why are you the right person to write this book? Why is this the right time for this book? I wasn't thinking about that at all in the publishing context, but that is a hundred percent what's true of me in this book in the personal context. You know, I wrote this to help us find hope and joy during a really tough time. And, um, and so I feel like, uh, thank goodness we didn't have to find this creative solution before, you know, and uh, part of me wishes I had never had to write this novel. Um, But my mom's doing pretty well now. You know, we're doing a bunch of launch events together, which feels amazing. And um, yeah. And so I just, I just feel blessed that this book and this moment, I think if there's something I feel really blessed about, it's that we took this project that was about this very intimate connection with me and my mom. And when I decided then Hey, I think there's something here. I think this is a career path I want to take. The fact that then I had a very lucky and smooth and pretty fast 
step from writing the draft to finding a great agent and, um, you know, working with a great publisher to have it released. I mean, that really feels uh, very, very lucky. And I'm glad that that was as fast as it was. Um, and I'm glad my mom is pretty healthy and able for us to both just celebrate this together. I love it. Um, let's, I, I want to stick a pin in that conversation for just a minute because I, I 100% want to come back to that and pick up yep. that thread. Um, but I, I do want to ask you this. Um, how did you get, uh, because there's a, a very specific point I want to get to with this, but um, how did you get involved in the museum world mm. um, from electrical engineer, slam poet to obviously you go to working in museums? How, how did that come about? Yeah, it was very quick, actually. Um, when I was in college, I was um, teaching uh, math sections to help put myself through school. And I was really struck by how even engineering students often were terrified by math or hated math. And I just love math. I think it's beautiful. I think it's an art form. And um, I started getting curious about spaces where people could learn outside of grades and um, desks and, you know, and exams. And I found that museums and I started out in science museums, um, you know, were places the guy, uh, Frank Oppenheimer, the brother of the famous Oppenheimer um, who founded the Exploratorium. He has this phrase he said once, you know, no one ever failed museum. And I saw museums and libraries, too, as places for free choice learning. We go because we're curious. We go because we want to explore. Um, we go to um, learn something new without judgment and with a lot of possibility. And so I found my way into museums very quickly because actually while I was working at NASA, I was also volunteering and working at some small museums on the side, building and fixing exhibits. And I just loved how creative and playful and social um, that experience of learning and curiosity could be. Gotcha. And out of that experience, one of the things that came out of that was the Museum 2.0 blog. That's right. So when I was in my mid twenties, I started this blog that became, it kind of blew up very quickly and became one of the biggest blogs in the museum industry. And it sent me on a real wild ride where for, um, uh, several years I was traveling consultant, working with museums all over the world. Um, you know, the national art museum of Denmark or Taiwan, I mean, just all kinds of places. And, um, I was somebody who was really focused on this idea of inviting visitors, not just to, to consume and to learn and look and learn in the museum, but really to contribute and to be part of building community in a museum. And that blog really, you know, writing that blog introduced me to writing vulnerably on the internet and to writing discipline, getting things out every week. Um, but it also ushered me into a career um, as a consultant and later as a museum director that I really couldn't have anticipated and, and 100% would not have happened had I not been writing that blog. So all of this good stuff came out of that. Um, yeah, yeah. But one one thing that I find interesting, there there uh, came a point, um, August of last year, I believe it was, when you decided to step back from that because it had kind of become something that um, was was no longer serving you. Or I I'll, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. Um, and and the reason I'm I'm asking you this is because I, I think a lot of writers um, get involved in in writing and publishing and get involved in the business of doing all that, and there are a lot of things that you can do about writing um, that kind of 
in, in a way can steal the joy of the, mm-hmm. the original yeah. thing that you loved. And yeah. it, it's so easy to, to get sidetracked in doing good sure. um, that you lose track of what you were doing in the first place. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I, I yeah. want to hear your side of that, but yeah. a, am I, am I picking up? Uh, uh, I would say that's not really what happened for me. Hank. Okay. You know, in, in the fall of 2020, two things really happened. My mom got sick and it was just a life shift for me in terms of like, oh my gosh, this is where I want to focus. I don't want to focus on work. And I and was nothing else out. was happening around the world in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Either. Well, yeah. And, and I was really burned out from 10 years of being a CEO and nonprofit leadership, you know, and museum leadership is as much about hustling for fundraising as it is, you know, about leading a team and working with creative folks. And I would say that um, the other thing that was a reality is my husband and I um, live in, and my daughter, we live in a very beautiful place on the Santa Cruz mountains. And we um, set down roots here about 16 years ago and decided we weren't going to leave. And the way to kind of move up in museum world is to keep moving every few years to a bigger museum in a new city. And that was just not going to be my path. Um, Although here's what I will say about what you're talking about. Um, I have had so much love and delight from writing. Writing has always been part of my life. And I think that you're right, that it was a really intentional moment um, when I flipped from, I've written this draft and had this special experience with my mom to, okay, now I'm going to try to enter this world of publishing. And I actually got really great advice from a friend of mine who's an agent and an author. And he said, you know, Um, be attentive to, he said, you've had so much joy writing this first draft. That's great. You've had so much joy working with beta readers. That's great. He said, as you enter the publishing journey, be attentive to what you're finding joy in and what you aren't. You know, do you like querying? Do you like being on submit um, submission? Do you like doing the promotion? And, and he said to me, you know, there's a lot of ways to love and be involved in writing and to not take all those steps. And he said, you know, maybe you'll love those things. And right now, Hank, I'm saying I, I certainly am. But he said to me, you know, if you don't love them, that's okay. There's other ways to have a great and very rich experience in life with writing. And so I think that I'm um, totally into this, but also eyes wide open to the fact that I'm going to do it while it is joyful. Um, I've got to admit also that, you know, being able to publish this book, the deal I got changed my life financially so that I can write and support my mom, which I never imagined would happen. And um, yeah. And so, I mean, as long as it's giving me these gifts, I want to be writing and I want to keep my eyes wide open about the realities of the writing life, but also the publishing life as well. Love it. Um, there's a new documentary series uh, that that uh, came out on Netflix this last week, and um, it's I, I'm going to butcher the name of it. So, it, but that's that's not the point. Um, living to a hundred. Mm. Um, and there's uh, th- this guy who studied all of these blue zones around the world yeah. where where they have these uh, people that all live to be a hundred, and you know, trying to find what the um, what the common factors are there. And then, you know, then obviously what can we apply to our lives that they do, you know, but one of the things that he found uh, in all of these cultures was the, um, 
the fact that families are very close and that mm-hmm. uh, that grandparents um, depend on their children and then their grandchildren. And you have this built in community of family um, that is very close. And in every one of those cultures, that was prevalent in each one of them. Um I, I know that that you had an experience with your mother, your mother, you said, got cancer and you guys, you know, walk through this together and and it it changed not only her life, but your life and and your daughter's life. And, you know, that um, and and thank God that your your mother is doing better now. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, But I just I got the knowing that this interview was coming up. Mm. I was watching that the other night and I was like, oh, I'm going to ask Nina about that, mm. and, and that this um this sense of kind of rebuilding family community. Um, could you talk a yeah. little bit about your experience and how all that got started? Yeah. And Hank, that's such a big part of Mother Daughter Murder Night. You know, I like to say it's both a murder mystery and a family drama. And on the family side, it really is about these three strong women, three generations of women um, building and rebuilding, reshaping their family connection and their loving connection with each other. Um, You know, I'm very blessed that my mom and I, unlike, you know, in a novel, you need a lot of conflict. My mom and I have a very loving, close relationship and with my sister as well. And And when my mom got sick, all three of us um, at the time were CEOs of different organizations. And my mom, my sister and I are the kind of people who love each other a lot, but we are super independent. In fact, you know, my mom called and she said, uh, they found tumors in my brain. I need to have emergency brain surgery, but don't come. You have your own lives. You have your own work. Don't come. And of course, you know, we hung up and then immediately my sister and I text each other. We're like, "Uh, we're going right now. Right. And a lot of this book and writing this book was about me um, processing through uh, and exploring the idea of what we think of when we think of being strong and particularly what it means to be a strong woman, because I certainly learned and my mom, my sister and I all exemplified that strength equaled independence, standing on your own feet. But I think that what we really learned through, or I'll just say I, what I really learned through um, this healing process and what what I think, frankly, a lot of people have been talking about through the pandemic is that there's a lot of strength in interdependence and that right. if we're too focused on our own independence, it can lead us to selfishness, but it can also lead us, as you're saying, to poor health outcomes and to loss. And I think that a lot of me writing this book and imagining these three generations of Rubicon women coming together, using this murder mystery to solve and move forward, um, was about me grappling with and and learning to love and admire what it means to find strength in caring for and with each other, as opposed to in standing apart. And, you know, um, Hank, there's, you know, three main women in this book, Lana, the grandma, who's a very tough, independent woman, you know, Beth, the mom, who's a very caring and and strong um, nurse, and Jack, the granddaughter, who's very adventurous. And, And I like to say, you know, I am always curious when I talk to readers, I'm curious for you, you know, which Rubicon women do you feel like you connected with most? (laughs) And I'll say that, you know, I in writing this book was Alana learning to love the Beth inside of me, learning Mm. to um, expand my definition of strength um, to this interdependence that you're talking about. um, And that, that is shown in these places like the blue zones where people have um, very rich, long lives. 
Well, since I turned 50 a year ago, um, these these topics have been of more and more interest to me, um, you know, and, um, and my uh, my oldest daughter made me a, a grandfather as well. And so these different roles in life, you know, I, I still, you know, think of myself as, you know, 25 or something. And then, you know, I've got grown kids and now, you know, grandkids coming along and it's you uh, I, I'm when you said, you know, which character do you, um, align with and all three of them, I, I have seen myself in all three of these characters, Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we're at different stages of life and there, there really is this, um, this growth progression that happens Mm -hmm. with us, um, not only physically, but emotionally and how we connect with those around us Mm -hmm. uh, at different stages is, is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love that this book is a mix of kind of cozy mystery and family drama. Um, I I understand that you and your mom were both mystery fans. Um, Can you kind of trace that back to a root? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why I wrote a mystery. You know, I think that um, I grew up, you know, with my mom reading, you know, Sue Grafton, Janet Ivanovich, oh, yeah. Faye Kellerman, some of the classics of the 90s in particular. And actually, when my mom got sick, we ended up pulling out old favorites to read again. And that Love was really it. the impetus for me to say to her, you know, gosh, what if I tried to do this? What if I tried to write a murder mystery? And what if, you know, we had main characters who were, you know, inspired by people a little bit like us. And it really became for us um, this joyful exploration of something we both love. And, you know, and we were rewatching old Monk and Columbo and um, <laughs> reading, you know, craft books on how to write a mystery, you know, because of course you read them all your life. And so you get some sense of, oh, right. okay, I need a few suspects. I, you know, I need, I need an interesting setting. Um, but, you know, it's a whole different thing to really try and write one. And um, I certainly learned a ton in the writing of this book so so let's break it down um where did you start did you did you have an idea in mind a murder um you know what what was kind of the first thing that came to you that sparked the you know kind of what if game that goes into first planning out a novel yeah i started with three women and actually you know hank i live in the santa cruz mountains in the monterey bay my mom lives in los angeles and i have been trying i've been on a campaign to get my mom to move up here for 10 years and uh, very unsuccessfully and um and so you know i and when she got sick the what if started from our own lives i said okay what if you had this really tough business mogul woman in Los Angeles, this Jewish woman in Los Angeles who got sick and um, was forced to move in with her daughter and granddaughter up in the Monterey Bay. And it was kind of one of these things, Hank, where I couldn't get my mom to leave Los Angeles, but I could get my imaginary mom to leave Los Angeles. And so so I imagined, you know, what would this woman um, who would feel so pent up and so stuck and trapped in this little cottage in the Monterey Bay, you know, um, how would she find her power and agency in that place, um, disrupted and uprooted from the world of Los Angeles where she had had her own power as a realtor. And um, and so that's where it started. And then I knew it was going to be a murder mystery. One of the reasons um, I didn't just write a family drama, one is, of course, I love murder mysteries, but also for a first novel, it felt overwhelming to imagine inventing a story out of nothing. And with a murder mystery, I knew the genre and I knew there were these tentpoles 
rules of things that had to happen, right? Sure. You have to find a dead body. There have to be some suspects. You have, the detective has to figure it out. There has to be a reveal. And, and that gave me some confidence um, and, and just like a little bit of guidance in how I might start to do it. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, for the first few weeks, my mom and I, we would just chat about these characters. I had not written yeah. a word. We would just talk about, oh, what if you did move up? What would it be like? What would what what if it was a more outrageous version? And how would this happen? And da, 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 da. and um, I actually felt kind of embarrassed because I felt like I hadn't written a word. How could I eat? Like, what were we doing? We were just inventing imaginary people, you know, in a hospital waiting room. And then but then when I started writing, because I'd spent so much time with her and with these characters, the writing flowed. And while I had to do a lot of work and used actually a lot of engineering brain to plot out an interesting mystery, everything about those three women interacting with each other felt very natural because I felt like I knew these women so deeply from that brainstorming and from um, all of the inspiration that I was drawing um, from our own lives and from others as well. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Sanderson, the fantasy author, talks about the pre-writing process, mm-hmm. and um, that is an essential part of writing. Is the the going through, learning these characters, and you know, kind of fleshing out ideas before you ever start typing the book. That a lot of that, and, and you know, we we discount um, time that's not pecking keys on the keyboard as not writing, but that's 100% part of the writing process. And like you said, that became essential to understanding the story, but not only the story, the characters and, and it, it just flowed from there, huh? That's right. And I, I think that, you know, with I think the downside of something like a murder mystery is you could get very plot driven. And, and you know, there are plot driven yeah. mysteries that are very enjoyable. But I knew I wanted to do something character driven. And um, there's no question in my mind that the heart and soul of this book is in that little cottage with those three women. And um, the mystery was something that was much more intellectual for me in terms of determining, you know, who should die? What should it be about? What are the different motives that are possible? How would this unspool? That was much more of an intellectual and kind of technical exercise, but it was the heart and the soul of these women renegotiating their relationships that really um, was the pulse of the story going through. I'm glad that you described the the character versus plot, uh, because a lot of uh, times we'll think about um, genre fiction as mm. as what happens and how it happens, uh, you know, so very much plot driven. And then we have the um, the more literary fiction where it's all about character developments and sometimes nothing really happens, but it's just about the journey that these characters go on. But the taking these two elements and merging them together is is the real power of this book is not only is there an engaging why and what happens but we we get to see these characters grow and bond and uh, and there's also you know some some levity in there there's uh, some moments of of joy in 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 the midst of you know the all the horrible stuff going on and that's the, to me that's really where this book shines is the the melding together of those two things 
Well, thank you. And I think I said it earlier, you know, that I wrote every scene trying to make my mom smile. So, you know, there's plenty of humor in this book and, um, and joy, and it really is rooted in that intention. And I'll also say, I feel so lucky, Hank, that this book, you know, I wrote it for my mom because I thought this would be entertaining for us. And it's been really amazing for me as a mystery reader to see how over the last couple of years, and I don't know if this is pandemic related or not, but I think we've seen more books like the Thursday Murder Club books or um, Finley Donovan, Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers, where um, there is this heart and this humor um, alongside a great mystery. Um, you, you didn't necessarily start writing the book with the intention to publish, but you did take it seriously. Yeah. Um, when did you realize that that you had something on your hands, that this was, this could be more than just a fun project for you and your mom. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not sure. I mean, I really remember the first scene that I wrote, which is actually the scene where the granddaughter Jack um, is out kayaking and comes upon something um, that um, she did not expect to find in the water. Um, and I, I remember writing it and you know sharing with my mom, but also texting it to one of my best friends and saying, I think this feels like it like it could be in a book, you know, and it's so hard. I think when you're working in Microsoft word or however you choose to write, yeah. like it doesn't look like a book. It looks like your eighth grade, you know, essay. It looks like, you know, uh, and it's so like a book report. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that it was kind of interesting, you know, alchemy to imagine, does this feel like the kinds of things I read or not? And, um, I, I think that, so I, I think that from early on, I felt like there was, some spark and some life in it, but I really had no idea. Um, I worked with a ton of beta readers. I love working with beta readers. You know, my past life in museums was all about inviting visitors and collaborators to co-create inside museums. So I was very comfortable sending my first draft to people and asking them some specific questions and getting their input and getting it from a lot of folks. And I know not everybody feels like that's going to feel easy or safe for them. But for me, that was part of taking it seriously. Um, I think that, you know, there also was this sense of once you get enough scenes down that you no longer can sort of hold the timeline in your head, um, that you need, you know, some software and some kind of structural approach to be able to figure yeah. out what's happening. That was a moment of seriousness. Um, but also because I was in this deep programming from my past career, there was also this extent to which I was trying, regardless of where this book went, I was trying every day to tell myself it's enough that you're doing this, that you're finding joy in it. And that, yes, I mean, no question. One of the things I love about writing, especially at this stage when I'm doing some caregiving, is that it's something I can go all in on and focus on and try and challenge myself so hard on. And then when I need to, I can just close it. There are no yeah. meetings, there are no emails, you know, and I think that after spending so many years um, managing a facility, working with many, many other people, it feels very liberating to have work I can do very intensely, but where I'm not, others are not relying on me and I'm not in real time, constant collaboration with others. So I, there, there are things I miss about that. I love that creative collaboration process, but this is right for me at this time um, in my, you know, in my life and my journey. 
So the the majority of a writer's life is solitary and you're working on the project yourself like you just described. But there does come a point where there is a bit of a collaborative effort. You mentioned beta readers. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, um, if I understand your story right, um, when you had finished the book and then uh, edited the book as, as best you could from from your vantage point, then you started soliciting, um, uh, you know, agents right. and you landed an agent and then your agent had some feedback for you. What was, what was that process like? You know, that, that you're so close to the story yeah. and now someone who knows nothing about it, you know, gets fresh eyes and a fresh perspective on it and then offers input. Um, yes. is, is that difficult to receive from no. someone when you're, when you're so close to the, Oh, the, Hank, the for project. me, it was so amazing. I love, so my agent is Stephanie Lieberman and she works with two colleagues, uh, Molly and Adam, and all three of them offered me such amazing input. And I really feel like I got, you know, uh, an MFA from them through the eight months we worked on three redrafts um, before um, Stephanie was ready to submit it. And frankly, you know, maybe the MFA started with Stephanie and her team and then it can continued with my editor at William Morrow, Liz Stein, who was extraordinary. I'd never had creative writing instruction before. And so to have somebody um, in my agent really being able to give me feedback and guidance was so valuable. Um, I'm somebody who really loves to learn, loves to grow, and you cannot coach me enough. I'm like, bring it on. I want more. I think also the fact that your agent, unlike anybody else you might engage in this, is financially invested in the success sure. of the project means right. they're they're only giving you they're not giving you input from a place of ego or I would do it this way or they're giving you input from the place of how can I support you in making this story the strongest it can be and I felt the same way with my editor at William Morrow Liz Stein um, you know I think that also I knew that I in choosing to query and choosing to take this path that I was taking something personal and intimate and decided I almost think of it like a break where it's like now we are turning this into a product for a broad market. And that may mean some different choices. There may be some darlings that were um, lovely for me and my mom that are not going to make it to the finish line. And that's okay. And I think that in no way invalidates or makes less sweet what happened with me and my mom and my beta readers before to have this continued growth with my agent and editor after. And there are so many very specific things I learned about being a better writer from my agent and from my editor. And I'm taking those into, you know, the next uh, book I'm writing. And I can't wait to, you know, get more feedback um, and get more coaching. And because I feel like I'm just at the beginning of this journey. It's so wonderful that we've gotten a lot of support for the book. um, But I know that um, there's a lot more I have to learn about writing. And I can't wait to, you know, continue to put these lessons into practice as I grow as a writer. Without giving anything away in in the book, um, were there any specific things that that changed in editing? Um, Were characters uh, added, taken away, major plot points? Kind of what what were what was kind of a a big thing for you that that you couldn't see, but then getting the new perspective from someone that made the book better? Is there anything that you can point to? Yeah, there, there, I would say there are three big ones. Um, the first is just adding layer and nuance to the story. I think that my first version, 
action, particularly when you think about suspects and the murder. You know, some of the characters were drawn quite uh, broadly, and I really learned to bring, um, you know, depth to all the characters. Um, Another very specific thing that happened was my editor um, suggested adding the prologue that's there. Um, Originally, the book started with Lana in Los Angeles. Now it starts with Beth and Jack in Elkhorn Slough, where most of the book takes place. That was the right thing to do to really anchor readers in um, both the setting, but also the fact that this is a mystery. It's not just about a lady in Los Angeles who gets cancer. Um, And then one very specific tip that my agent gave me that I would recommend to anybody writing a murder mystery is she said, you know, you've done a good job setting up having multiple suspects, but you're just sort of going, jumping to different ones of them when it's convenient for you or for the main characters. And she said, think about it like a lazy Susan, where every new clue that invalidates one suspect should cast suspicion on the next one. And that's where the uh, story goes next. And it really helped me both keep these characters moving, but also it kept the plot driving because you wanted to see how that next person would respond to that thing, as opposed to kind of randomly moving through the place in different ways. There is also a big change that happened to the ending, but I'm not going to spoil that for your readers here. (laughs) Well, the, the, the way this book kind of snowballs, but that was a great way, you know, when you learn something about this character, it, it then grows the story and it grows and it grows and it grows until you get to the end of it. And you're like, Holy cow. You know, this is, this has gone places. I I never thought it was going to go. Um, I absolutely love the book, Nina. Um, Mother Daughter Murder Night is available everywhere today. Go visit your local bookstore. Grab a copy of it. If you don't have a good local bookstore, we'll put links to it in the show notes where you can grab it on Amazon or from Audible. Um, I have I read the the pre-release of this, loved it, and I've been waiting for release day so I could go get the audio book because I, I can't wait to hear what the audio is going to sound like and experience the book all over again. Have you gotten to listen to the audio yet, Nina? I haven't yet, and I'm really excited about it, too. Um, the narrator, Jane Oppenheimer, um, is just terrific, and I can't wait to hear what she did with these characters. There's a lot of dialogue in this book. There's a lot of humor in this book, um, a lot of one-liners, and it'll be interesting um, and just exciting to hear uh, a, a professional like her um, have and her take on it. Absolutely. Mother Daughter Murder Night available everywhere now. And Nina, if people are just discovering you and want to follow along the journey and everything that's coming up, uh, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty much everywhere on social media at Nina K. Simon. My website is ninaksimon.com. I would say the place I'm most in, um, active these days is Instagram, but um, I am on all the different socials. And because I'm a new author and this is a brand new release, if you're reading this book and something speaks to you um, or strikes you in a particular way, I'd love to hear it. Heck, I'd love to see a picture of you and your mom and the book. You know, I still can't quite believe this is real, Hank. And the more I hear from people who are connecting with the story, um, the more it helps me imagine um, where it might go. You know, I wrote this book to be a real source of comfort and joy for me and my mom. And I just hope it brings joy to readers all over. Well, I'm going to have to post my picture on Instagram and tag you in it. So thank you. Nina, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you. And thank you, everybody who's listening. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. 
be sure to subscribe to the Storycraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.